And as we now come to Your Word, Lord, we remember that Your Word is perfect, that it is inerrant, inspired, infallible, unassailable, all-sufficient. And so, Father, we understand that this is the means that You have given us by which You speak to us. And so we ask, O Lord, that we would hear the voice of our Good Shepherd today. We ask that You would use the study of Your Word not only to strengthen us, not only to edify us, not only to encourage us and correct us and instruct us in all Your ways, but we also ask that Christ, above all, would be glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 17. Uh, we'll be continuing our study in John chapter 17 today. If you need a Bible, uh, we have Bibles out in the foyer. If you need a Bible, just go ahead and raise a hand and uh, Jordan will get one. I saw him just go out into the foyer. Uh, but those Bibles are not only for your use in here, but if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to, uh, to take one home with you. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at John chapter 17, verse 24. Um, as I was preparing... Uh, today's lesson. I was actually shocked. I, I decided to go back and, and look at when we started John chapter 17, uh, I, and I was just shocked to see how long ago it was that we started this chapter, uh, it's where we've been studying Jesus' high priestly prayer. That's what we call this prayer that He's offering up in this chapter. At this point, as of today, it's actually been six months since we started this chapter. Uh, I think we've done book studies that were shorter than six months. Uh, but granted, you know, there have been some breaks uh, here and there. I was gone for a few weeks. We did a week in Ezekiel. Uh, but still, this has just been an amazingly deep, rich chapter uh, that, we've, that we've just taken our time going through. Now, you might remember that when we started this chapter back in January, six months, um, that I likened the study of this chapter to climbing Mount Everest, which, of course, is the highest mountain in the world. Uh, we've seen just one precious fundamental doctrine after another covered in this chapter. So many great doctrines covered in this chapter. And I am more convinced now than I was even before that if there's one go-to chapter in all of Scripture, it's this one. It's John chapter 17. We've seen Christ pray for Himself, and then He prayed for the disciples, and then for the church throughout this age as a whole. Of course, he's following the pattern that was established in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, but he's prayed that we, that, that his church would be kept, that is, that we would be secure in our salvation. He's prayed that we would be characterized by things like uh, having his joy, uh, by our holiness, that we'd be characterized by our love for what is true, uh, which primarily includes a love for God's Word, uh, that we would be characterized by mission, and that we'd be characterized by our unity, that is, our positional unity in Christ. These are all amazing doctrines. These are all 
just precious things for Christ to be praying for on our behalf as our intercessor, as our mediator. And it's wonderful to know that these petitions, every single one of them, has been granted, has been answered affirmatively by the Father. Uh, From the first century church to the present day church, Christians have been known for their uh, having possession of all these characteristics uh, that we've seen Jesus pray for here. But those are all things. All those things that He prayed for, they're all great. Um, They have something in common if you think about it. They're all things that we will experience on this side of glory. That is, they're things that we will experience in this life. Uh, before uh, before heaven, um, they're all things that every Christian has had before going into heaven. Uh, but it's at this point, which we come to today, that Jesus actually kind of changes direction just slightly with His prayer. And He brings us now to what I believe is the highest point of this incredible chapter, as He's now going to pray for the highest and the greatest privilege known to any man in any time in any place, which is to dwell in the presence of God's eternal glory. The fact that we would ever pursue anything less. The fact that we would ever settle for anything less in this world is our greatest treasure in life, or our highest pursuit in life only serves as evidence of just the incredible foolishness that man is capable of. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism starts with the question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why are we here? What's our primary purpose? And I drive this question home and bring this question up so many times in sermons because if you know the answer to this question, it changes so much in your life. If you understand why God has you here, You can endure all kinds of things with joy. But the answer to what is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is why we are here. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And what we have to understand is that forever must start on this side of glory. The flesh would incline us to glorify ourselves and to enjoy ourselves forever. But this only demonstrates how great our need for God's grace is. A grace that overwhelms. A grace that overcomes the inclinations of the flesh. A grace that redirects and straightens out all of our crooked desires and affections away from self and back toward God where they belong. What a great great need you and I have for God's grace. And it's easier to teach a dog to fly like an eagle than it is to convince an unregenerate man of his need for grace without God first taking hold of him. Nevertheless, we understand the clear testimony of Scripture, which tells us that to refuse God's grace in this life is to close the door on the beholding of God's glory that awaits us after this life. This raises a very important question for us, and it's this. How can we be absolutely certain that we will enjoy God forever as we behold His glory in heaven? 
how can we have assurance of that? How can we be positively certain about that? Is it possible to have certainty about this? And the answer is, yes it is. Yes it is, but it's not something that you will find. Assurance is not something that you're going to find by looking at or within yourself. That's what modern psychology tells us to do, to to look within ourselves for the answers. If we're feeling depressed, if we're feeling down, they'll say that the answer is to look within ourselves or or to to, to love ourselves more. Uh, Self-esteem and self-love are the answers to all of our problems, they would say. But nothing could be further, friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Self-love isn't the answer to our problems. It's the cause. It's the cause. Self-esteem is just, it's the idol of the age. Looking at ourselves, or looking within ourselves, is no place to find assurance of salvation. Because if we're honest with ourselves, when we look within, we won't like what we see. If you're looking at yourself or within yourself, all you'll find is every reason to despair. Because if you are thinking biblically, that is, if you are thinking and if you are, are seeing things the way that God thinks and the way that God sees things, you'll only see what a great sinner you are. If we're thinking and seeing things biblically, looking at or within ourselves for assurance of our salvation can only lead to uncertainty, and to dread of what force might be around the corner coming tomorrow to shake our faith down to its core. But if we listen to what Christ prays here for us in John chapter 17, verse 24, we will find our answer. We will find certainty. We'll find assurance of our salvation. Praying on our behalf as our high priest before God. He leads us to the highest point of this chapter where we hear Him praying to the Father that it is His will, that it is Christ's will, that we, that those for whom Christ came and in whose place He suffered and died, that we would behold His glory. The fact that it is His will that we be with Him and that we see His glory is the basis of the assurance of our salvation. And it reminds us that there's nothing in this life, there's nothing in this life that's more important than being absolutely certain that we believe and believe savingly upon Jesus Christ. And so Jesus prays this in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now here we see that the person addressed is the Father. Who's the subject of this petition? It is they whom you have given me. Uh, What's his petition for those whom the Father has given him? It's that they may be with me where I am. Why should they be? Because he says, I desire. And for what purpose? So that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
That, in a nutshell, is how this one verse breaks down into so many pieces. Uh, it's, it's filled with glorious truths. Jesus has warned us that the world would hate us because the world hates Jesus. The world hates God. But as Jesus was despised and rejected by man, so too we should not be surprised when we also are hated, despised, and rejected by man, by the world. So with that in mind, that that we're going to be hated and rejected and despised by the world, you might ask, is it even worth it to be a Christian? Is it worth it to believe in Jesus? Well, you, you better count the cost. You better count the cost because nobody, absolutely nobody, promised us that being a Christian was going to be easy. In fact, Jesus warns us that it's going to be difficult, which is why he says you must take up your cross. That wasn't a walk in the park. That that wasn't something easy. That was something painful and difficult. So is it worth it? Well, if we're counting the cost and doing the math, you, you realize that you can either strive to please man or God. So you can strive to please man for what? Maybe 60 years? Maybe 80 years? Maybe 100 years in some rare cases? But what is even 100 years of pleasing man if the cost is God's eternal rejection? Wouldn't it be wiser to endure the wrath of man by God's grace for 60 years, or 80 years, or or 100 years, or more, if we know that the reward is that Christ desires our presence and glory with Him forevermore. Now, we need to understand that Jesus is not saying, when He says, I desire, He's not saying, I wish that those whom you have given me would be with me where I am. Uh, I'm, I'm not crazy about how this verb gets translated in uh, the New American Standard Bible 95 edition because the English word desire is pretty broad. Um, it can at least possibly be the essential equivalent of to wish. And Jesus doesn't wish anything. Uh, for example, I might say that I, I desire that my garden uh, would have a bountiful harvest this year. You guys know I love to garden. And, and you'd understandably uh, understand that to mean that I'm saying, um, I hope, I wish. You'd understand that, those word, uh, that the word desire there in that context would actually uh, give a lack of assurance, a lack of confidence or certainty. So that is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, I wish that they would be here, or I, I hope that they could be where I am. Christ does not hope or wish that we may be where He is, that we may behold His glory, as if it's uncertain. No, the word that gets translated desire is uh, the Greek word thelo, which is most commonly translated uh, in our Bibles as I will. I will. So we're once again talking about this divine will. The divine will that we've talked about so many times throughout this chapter. It's so central to this chapter. But we're once again talking about the divine will as we reach now the pinnacle of this chapter, which stands above every other chapter in Scripture. But Christ's will is one with the Father's will because 
there's only one divine will. And Christ's will is that we would be with Him in glory in order that we may behold His glory. That we may be where He is. That we may behold His glory. This is the pillar. This is the rock, if you will, on which the assurance of salvation of all who were given to Christ by the Father stands firm and secure. That it is Christ's will that we be with Him where He is, that we may behold His glory. Family, what depths of comfort and assurance we can have, not when we look at ourselves, not when we look within ourselves, but when we look to Christ and hear Him pray that this is His will. That His will is that we be with Him and behold His glory. And the reason that this is such a glorious text of Scripture and such incredible, rich, soul-satisfying comfort for us is because we believe, and indeed you might say, we know because Scripture is truth and Scripture affirms uh, the truth that Christ is God and God's will can never fail. Uh, We believe and we know that His will can never be thwarted. That God's will will always be fulfilled. He has a perfect record with no losses or defeats. So if it is Christ's will that we be with Him where He is, that we may behold His glory, then we will, without a shadow of a doubt, we will be with Him where He is, that we may behold His glory one day. Think about all the marvelous Wonderful passages of Scripture that affirm the supremacy of God's sovereign will and the impossibility of His will not being fulfilled. King Nebuchadnezzar probably wrote what I think is the best one. I love what King Nebuchadnezzar had to say from Daniel chapter 4. Now as you may know, King Nebuchadnezzar pursued his own fame and his own glory in life. And he took credit for building Babylon into the greatest empire in the land for at least a season. And so one day, as he's outside admiring what he believes to be his work, uh, the kingdom of Babylon, basking in his own glory, the Lord, in his sovereign grace, took away Nebuchadnezzar's sanity. And when his sanity was finally restored, here's what King Nebuchadnezzar had to say. This godless pagan man who had spent his life persecuting God's people comes to this. He says in Daniel chapter 4 verses uh, 34 to 35, he says, but at the end of that period, that period where he lost his sanity, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no, no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? The mightiest, what this is telling us and showing us is that the mightiest, the most powerful man on earth could do absolutely zilch. He could do absolutely nothing to prevent God's will from being fulfilled. 
Daniel's fourth chapter ends gloriously with Nebuchadnezzar writing this in verse 37. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You think he's speaking from experience there? He's speaking from experience. He had to learn the hard way. Let that not be said of us. Let that not be said of us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 tells us that God works all things after the counsel of His will. There's that word again. Same Greek root word. It's not that He wishes all things would work out as He had planned or as He had hoped. It's not that He works out only some things after the counsel of His will. No, God works all things after the counsel of His sovereign will. Now, if God works all things according to the counsel of His own sovereign will, and if it's Christ's will that His people be with Him where He is, that they may behold His glory, what are the odds? What are the chances that it's actually going to happen? Could we say 90%? Would that be fair? No, that's not fair at all. How about 99%? How about 99.9%? No, even if we say that, even if we say that there's only a 99.9% chance that it'll happen if it's God's will, that would be an insult to God. The correct answer, of course, is that there's a 100% chance that it's going to happen. It is guaranteed to happen if it is God's will. There's a 100% chance of His will being fulfilled. Conversely, there is a 0% chance of His will not being fulfilled. Now, if we're going to be completely honest with this doctrine, we've got to be prepared and and equipped. I want to equip you to handle a couple objections, uh, the most common objections anyway. And there are two primary objections that I want to acknowledge and respond to. First, somebody might say this. Somebody might say, well, don't the Scriptures say that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. And the answer is yes, that, that is what that says there. But my, my first response to this would be that if God desires or will for all to be saved in the same sense that Jesus wills for His people to be with Him where He is, that they may behold His glory, then that would necessarily lead us straight into damnable heresy. Uh, That would lead us right into universalism. Uh, Once a person affirms universalism, which is the idea that everybody gets saved, uh, once a person affirms that, they are standing far, far outside the gates of Christian orthodoxy that have stood for 2,000 years. I I would have very, very strong concerns. I I would even have doubts about the salvation of anyone who affirms universalism. Why? Because to affirm universalism is actually to accuse God of being a liar. Because the Scriptures are God's Word. And God's Word tells us of the reality of hell. The Scriptures attest to the reality of of, of hell, and they tell us that only a few will escape that reality. Many will find themselves in that reality. So the word desire or will 
can have multiple senses, but it definitely isn't being used in the same sense in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that Jesus is using it back in our text today. Uh, additionally, in the words of Matthew Henry, we should understand uh, th- this text in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, uh, is telling us authoritatively that God, quote, desires not the death and destruction of any. And he refers to Ezekiel 33.11, where we see that uh, God takes no joy in the death of the wicked. Uh, but he continues, but the welfare and salvation of all, not that he has decreed, and that's the key word there, not that he has decreed the salvation of all, for then all men would be saved, but he has a good will to the salvation of all, and none perish but by their own fault. End quote. So that's the first objection, that the Bible says that God desires all to be saved. In one sense, yes, but in the sense that Jesus is speaking in here in verse 24, Absolutely not. The second objection that we should at least acknowledge goes something like this. Somebody might say, well, it's not fair that God would desire the salvation of some in a decretive sense, that He decrees their salvation, but that He doesn't decree it for all. And the response to this is to, to start with this. That's an appeal to God's justice. Uh, and we have to agree that God is never unjust in any of His ways, Right? Is God ever unjust? Does He ever do what's wrong? Absolutely not. So if this is truly a violation of God's justice, then it can't be true. But what this boils down to, again, is an appeal to justice. And here's the thing. It's important for us to see that because there has never, ever been anyone who's been saved by an appeal to God's justice. Because all justice demands is that the punishment fit the crime. Justice demands that you and I, therefore, and every other sinner, spend eternity in hell under the never-ending constant flow of God's eternal wrath. All this argument does is underscore our desperate need for grace because grace, grace is the only way that anyone has ever been saved. Grace is the key to glory. The fact that it is Christ's will assures us that it is God's will, indeed His decretive will, that His people who have believed in Him join Him where He is that they may behold His glory. That is the basis of our assurance. He willed it and He earned it on the cross by shedding His blood for the remission of our sins. Now we should notice that Christ is speaking as though He's already there. As though He's already died and resurrected and ascended into heaven. Uh, When He says that they may be where I am, well, where was He right now? He was actually in the presence of the disciples. But no, He's referring to the future. Uh, Only God can speak of the future in the present tense or, or even in the past tense. And He does this because His plans can never, ever be thwarted. They can never fail. If He has decreed it, it is as good as done. So Christ speaks here from an ascended position as though the resurrection is already accomplished and He's already ascended into heaven. Now we know, right, that the the resurrection has massive significance for us because it was evidence for everyone that 
Christ is God incarnate, but also that Christ's work of redemption satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. We see the disciples who, in the days after Jesus' death, they, they mourned and they lamented over His death, over His crucifixion. All they could say was, we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. That was their hope. He, he was their hope. But in their minds, those hopes that they had in Him died when He died. And so now, their hope was gone. And just like them, apart from the resurrection, we would have no assurance of salvation. But you and I know that the story doesn't end with the death and burial of Christ. We understand that He was raised from the dead on the third day. We understand that after spending 40 days with the disciples, ministering to them and appearing to over 500 people, He ascended on high. He was not there yet as He's praying this but he could pray as though he were. Why? Because it was certain. Because it was certain. Richard Phillips notes this. Richard Phillips says, quote, Jesus expresses his saving will in light of his foreordained triumph in returning on high. He sees himself already resurrected and ascended into heaven and wills that believers in him will join him there on high. End quote. Now friends, throughout this chapter, I've been trying to remind us over and over again that all of these things that Jesus prayed for us were granted, were were answered in the affirmative by the Father because the will of God the Father is identical to the will of the Son of God. Uh, if this were not so, then all we could do is, is desire, right? All we could, in the, in the sense of hoping or wishing that these things could be ours. But the first reason that we can gain assurance of salvation from this passage is because we see that it's, it's Christ's will that all who believe in Him be with Him. And since there is only one divine will, and because that will can never be denied, we can be certain that it will be fulfilled. That's the first reason we can get assurance from this passage. But wait, there's, there's more. Uh, there are more reasons that we can gain assurance from this passage. We, we know, we can be sure that this petition was answered in the affirmative because we know that the Father so greatly delighted in the Son. There were two times when the disciples actually heard the voice of the Father from heaven. One of those times was at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, of course, as Jesus uh, was baptized by John the Baptist, and as he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon him, and the Father declared from heaven for all to hear, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's from Matthew 3.17. The second time they hear the voice of the Father was on the Mount of Transfiguration where the disciples who were present with Him heard the Father once again declare from heaven, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And He adds, listen to Him. That's from chapter 17, verse 5 of Matthew. So the Father was always pleased by the Son. And the the resurrection uh, proves that too. That He was pleased with Christ's death. Uh, that He delighted in the Son at all times. And if this is the case, if the Father always delighted in the Son, how could the Father deny Christ's petition on our behalf? 
As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 9, What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? In other words, what, what father would not give his son what his son desires? Who would give him a stone when he just asks for a piece of bread? So we can have assurance of our salvation, number one, because it was Christ's will, because the, number two, because the Father delighted in the Son, and third, because the Son shed His own blood to fulfill the eternal covenant that He had made with the Father, which we refer to as the covenant of redemption. You see, salvation is by grace alone. It cannot be by our merit because we have no merit before God. So so there is no other way aside from grace for this will to be granted. But God is also perfectly just, which means that every sin has to be punished. And central to Christ's mission in which He took on flesh and lived a perfectly sinless life was dying the death that you and I deserve to die. The wage of sin, Scripture tells us, is death. Right. That's what God owes us for our sin, in other words. But Christ stood in our place. He bore the wrath that our sins required. That's, that's living the life that we should have lived. That's what He did. And then He died the death that we deserve to die for sinning. That we may receive the reward that He deserved for living a sinless life. It's the reward that Adam failed to receive because he disobeyed God and fell into sin. Christ never did that. He never disobeyed God. He never fell into sin. And thus what God required for our salvation, which is perfect righteousness, He also provided. What God required, He provided through Christ's blood sacrifice. When we consider the assurance that we can have for our salvation and consider that it is by grace alone. What incredible woe this speaks to those who continue and persist to reject God's grace. See, see, everybody's going to have something to say on Judgment Day. Or they at least think so. Everybody thinks they're, you know, they're going to have some kind of excuse, some kind of argument before God. But friends, there will be no excuses no valid ones because the best that anyone will be able to truthfully claim is that they willfully suppressed the truth about God in their own unrighteousness being fully aware that God's eternal power and divine nature are evident absolutely everywhere throughout nature across creation and yet still despite those things being evident to them they persisted in refusing to yield to God. They still would not believe. See, everybody has an idea of what they'll say if and when they stand before God on that awful day of judgment. Most people, you know, if you ask them, uh, you know, what do you think you're going to say to God someday if He asks you, you know, why should I let you into heaven? Most people will say something like, well, you know, God's going to see that I, I tried to live a good and upright life and I think He'll reward my effort by, uh, you know, letting me into heaven. 
Uh, others might say something like they're pretty sure that their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. Um, maybe others will try to turn the tables on God and try to accuse Him of injustice or accuse Him of not being worthy of their devotion because, you know, how, for example, God, how could you allow there to be evil in the world? Never mind the fact that if, if God had disallowed the existence of evil, not a single one of us would exist. Think of Job, who thought of him, you know, he thought to himself that he'd present his case before God and he'd be so persuasive. He'd be so convincing. And that plan was just dashed to pieces when he finally saw God and could only say to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful to me which I did not know. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. People will plan to present some kind of argument before God, friends, but the truth is, the truth is that nobody will have a case to plead before God on Judgment Day. So what will be your plea? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, who died for sinners and whose righteousness was transferred to me by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That He took my sin upon Himself and He exchanged it by clothing me in His own robes of righteousness so that I stand in His merit because He stood in mine or my lack thereof. Family, how hopeless, how desperately hopeless is the man or woman who rejects God's grace in Christ. How woefully foolish it is to think that we have even a drop of merit, even an ounce of merit before God. To imagine that we deserve anything less than the hottest depths of hell. If it were possible for us to deserve the incredible privilege of of being where Jesus is and of beholding His eternal glory, then there was no need for Jesus to come. If, If it's possible for us to have enough merit to deserve that, then why would Jesus have to come and die for us? There would have been no need for Him to suffer. There would have been no need for Him to come. There would have been no need for Him to bleed. And there was no reason for Him to die because there would have been no need for grace. We could have relied on merit. He had to come because we can't rely on merit because we have none. But the truth is that Jesus did these things because it was necessary. And it was necessary because nobody, nobody but Jesus has merit with God. All we have is a desperate need for grace. As Jonathan Edwards famously said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made your salvation necessary. So what merit, friends, what merit will you claim with God? The truth is that the person who has rejected God's grace in the absence of God's eternal wrath won't be changed by the outpouring of His eternal wrath. Rather than pleading for mercy and for grace, the unregenerate will plead. They won't plead with God at all, actually. What they'll do is they'll plead with the rocks or the hills, begging with them, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It's from Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. 
They're going to be reasoning with the hills, begging the hills, rather than begging God for mercy. Don't be numbered among those who choose this route. If in this life you have never cast yourself on the mercy of God and the merit of Christ, which is found only by believing in Christ, you have effectively closed the door on being in His presence and beholding His glory in eternity. But you still have a heartbeat now. So what would keep you from pleading for mercy, pleading for grace, by believing in Christ now? You must plead for that mercy now. You won't when you stand before Him in judgment. You must believe His Word, which tells us that mercy is only available by repenting and believing in Christ. So repent and believe now before it's too late because there's no guarantee that your heart is going to be beating tomorrow. And if you're a Christian, friends, you have the responsibility. You have the mission. You must go and you must plead with your unbelieving wayward children and neighbors and friends to see the truth of this matter. That is your calling in life. That is your mission in life. That's the mission that we saw a couple lessons back. It's the Great Commission. If not you, if you're not the one to go and share the Gospel with them, then who? If, if not you, then, then who will warn them that only those who trust in Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved by the will of Christ who saves all of His own? How will they know? How will they know that only those who have believed on Christ and thus been clothed in His own perfect righteousness, how will they know that only those people will be saved if you don't tell them? They're not going to figure it out themselves. Man cannot reason to faith in Christ by himself. But God has ordained a means by which people believe. And that is through the preaching of His Word. Sharing the Gospel. Oh, you've already done that? You've, you've already told your friends and neighbors and children uh, the Gospel? And, and nothing's changed? Well, let me ask you this. What does a gardener do when he plants a seed and nothing springs up? He doesn't just give up. He gets another seed and he puts it there. And he'll get another seed and another seed and another seed until something springs up. Friends, we must love the unbelievers in our lives enough to do likewise. And the motivation for loving those people that way is the love of God in Christ that's been shown to us. Because God loved us and saved us when we were unworthy. Christ died for us when we were still sinners, long before you and I repented and believed in Jesus. Here in John chapter 17, verse 24, we see His unfathomable, incredible love for us in that He was longing for an eternal fellowship with you and me. His will isn't just that we go to heaven. His will is that we be with Him where He is. You and I were, were created to long for fellowship with those who love us and whom we love. This is why our hearts feel excruciating grief when a loved one passes away. This is why children and adults alike will literally shed tears just at saying goodbye for a day or two when it's a loved one. 
This was part of the human experience. And so what we understand here is that Christ's humanity is, is sort of on display here as He expresses a longing for us, for a longing for His people to be with Him where He is, to be with those who love Him and whom He loves. This is part of the human experience. Matthew Henry offers another helpful quote here. He writes in his commentary that, quote, Christ speaks here as if He did not count His own happiness complete unless He had His elect to share with Him in it. End quote. Think for just a moment about the highlight reel of your life. Think about the, the, the greatest moments of your life. Maybe it was your wedding. Maybe it was uh, giving birth to, to your first child or, or, or any of your children. Maybe it's all of them. Uh, it could be all kinds of things. But think about the, the highest and greatest moments of your life. And think about how much pleasure, how much joy how much satisfaction you got out of sharing that moment with people you love and who love you. I mean, this is one reason why we share everything on social media, right? Pictures and everything on social media, isn't it? It's because we want to share those moments with people who love us and whom we love. So too, Jesus desires, indeed He longs for, an eternal fellowship with the people for whom He died and whom He saved. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. Now normally you wouldn't put a concept like joy right next to the concept of a cross unless you were dying for somebody that you deeply, deeply love. For those who have believed in Jesus, the joy of fellowship, the joy of beholding His glory in heaven is what awaits us after this life. People will say that they look forward to, to this in heaven. They look forward to, to that in heaven. Maybe they look forward to, to seeing streets of gold. Maybe they look forward to seeing pearly gates. They want to know if their pets are going to be there. They want to know if so-and-so is going to be there. Maybe they even look forward to being just separated from sin and the effects of sin forever. But the truth is that if heaven were all of these things and yet was without Jesus, it wouldn't be heaven. It wouldn't be heaven. Samuel Rutherford, famous Puritan author, wrote this. He said, O my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without Thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have Thee still, it would be a heaven for me, for Thou art all the heaven I want. End quote. Friends, this single verse, verse 24 here in the 17th chapter of John, imparts infinite comfort and assurance to us, reminding us that our salvation isn't contingent upon the, the strength or the depth or the height of our faith. It depends on the will of Him who took our sin and took our shame, removing it from us as far as east is from the west, and who clothed us in the robes of His own perfect righteousness, all in order that where He is, we may be one day. So whether your faith be great or small, whether your faith is deep or shallow, if Christ is the object of your faith, if He is your greatest treasure and your greatest confidence, then rejoice. 
Rejoice in the assurance that Christ Himself, God incarnate, wills that you be with Him and that you may behold His glory. Think of the lengths and the depths that someone will go through for somebody that they love. Countless people have risked life and limb, climbing deadly mountains, crossing stormy seas for the sake of being with someone who loves them and whom they love. But Christ shed His blood for those whom He loves. And this being the case, don't ever allow affliction or trial to hinder you, your love for Christ. Don't ever let those things hinder your pursuit of Christ. Know this, that if Christ bled and died for you, and if on this terrible night on which He was betrayed, He prayed for you, you can be assured of this. If He's purchased you, He will also bring you safely home. In order that, you may be where He is. His will is that we be with Him and see His glory. And that is the basis of our assurance of salvation. And it reminds us, once again, that there is nothing in this life, there's absolutely nothing in this life that compares or that is more important than being absolutely certain that we believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Christ. We can only confess before You that we have sinned against You in every way possible. In our thoughts, in our actions, in our words, in what we've done and what we haven't done. We've failed to love You with our whole hearts, with all of our uh, minds, strength. Our, Our hearts have been far from You, even when our lips have been close to You, apart from Your grace. But by Your grace, You brought our hearts close to You. You drew us to Christ and You changed out the heart of stone and exchanged it for a heart of flesh that desires to obey You. O Father, apart from Your grace, we would be doomed. Woe would we be if Your grace had not taken hold of us and redirected our affections and our desires to Christ. So we thank You and we bless Your name for drawing us to Christ, for giving us faith to believe in Christ, and for strengthening our faith in times when we are weak. Father, teach us not to look to ourselves for assurance, but to look to Christ. We thank You that it was His will that we be saved. We thank You that His will is one with Yours. And so we thank You for the assurance of salvation that we have as a result of this. And we pray, O Lord, that You would use us, that You would send us to share the Gospel with those who are still lost in darkness for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.